welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 251. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with May Beal. Hi there! And also Mandy Moore. Hi everyone! I'm Mandy Moore, and I'm here today with our guest, Todd Libby. Todd is a professional web developer, designer, and accessibility advocate for 22 years under many different technologies, starting with HTML, CSS, Perl, and PHP. Todd has been an avid learner of web technologies for over 40 years, starting with many flavors of basic all the way to React and Vue. Currently an accessibility analyst at Nobility, Todd is also a member of the W3C. When not coding, you'll usually find Todd tweeting about lobster rolls and accessibility. So before I ask you what your superpower is, I'm going to make a bet. And my bet is that I'm 80% positive that your superpower has something to do with lobster rolls. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Am I right? Well. 80% 80% of the time, you'd be right. I just recently moved to Phoenix, Arizona, so I was actually going to say advocacy for uh, accessibility. But, yes, lobster rolls and the consumption of lobster rolls are a big part, too. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, well, tell tell me about the advocacy. <laughs> so, it started with seeing family members who are disabled, friends who are disabled, or have family members themselves who are disabled, and the struggles they have with trying to access uh, websites or web apps on the web, and the frustration, the look of, you know, like they're about ready to give up, and that's when I kind of knew that I would try to not only, you know, make my stuff that I made accessible, but to uh, advocate for people in accessibility. Thank you so much for your work. It is critical. I have personally worked with a number of different populations and started at a camp for children with critical illnesses and currently work at an organization that offers financial services for people with disabilities, well, complex financial needs, which the three target populations that we work with are people with disabilities, people with dementia, and people in recovery. So really excited to talk with you today. Thanks. You're welcome. When you started that journey, did you already have familiarity with uh, accessibility, or was it all just like oh, I, I got to learn all this stuff so I can start making it better. So I kind of fell into it because if you're like me and you started with making table-based layouts way back in the day because what we had, Mosaic Browser, NetSpeed Navigator, and Internet Explorer, we were making table-based layouts, which were completely inaccessible. But I didn't know that at And as the web progressed, I progressed. And then I bought a little orange book by Jeffrey Zeldin, Designing with Web Standards. And that pretty much started me on my journey on, uh, you know, semantic HTML, progressive enhancement, and web standards, and accessibility as well. I kind of tend to stumble into a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's a habit of mine. (laughs) 
sounds like it's a good habit and you're using it to help all the other people. So I hate to encourage you to keep stumbling, but by all means. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. If you were to advise someone wanting to know more about accessibility, would you suggest they start with that same book too? Or what What would you suggest to someone stumbling around in the dark and not, not hitting anything yet? The book is a little outdated. I think the last edition of his book was, geez, I want to say 2018, maybe even further back than that. I would suggest people go on websites like the uh, Ally Project, the A11YProject.com. They have a comprehensive list of resources, uh, links to learning there. Twitter is a good place to learn to follow people in the accessibility space. The other thing that I, you know, if people really want to dive in is to join the W3C. Uh, That's a great place. And there's a lot of different groups. You have the CSS working group, you have the accessibility side of things, which I'm a part of, the Silver community group, which is uh, we're working on the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines 3.0, which is Still a little ways down the road, but uh, a lot of great people um, from a lot of different companies. Some of those companies, you know, we've heard of Google, Apple, companies like that, you know, all the way down to individuals. Individuals can join as individuals, you know, if your company isn't a member of the W3C. So those are the three things that I mainly point to people. If you don't really want to dive into the W3C side of things, there's a lot of resources on the allyproject.com website that you can look up. So what does being a member entail? What do you have to do? Do you have to pay dues? Do you have to do certain projects? Maybe start as like an individual level because I'm sure we have mostly individuals listening to the show. Me as a, a newbie coder, what would I do to get started as a member of this initiative? Well, I started out as an individual myself. So I joined and I can get you the uh, link to the W3C community page. Go to sign up as an individual and someone will approve the form process that you go through. It's nothing too big. You know, it's nothing complicated. And then that will start you on your way, you can join a subgroup, you can join a group, a working group, and it doesn't cost an individual anything. Companies do pay dues to the W3C. And if your company is in the W3C, you get a hold of your company's uh, liaison and there's a process they go through to add you to a certain group. Because with me, it was adding me to the silver community group. But as an individual, you can join in, go to, you can, you know, hop right into a meeting from there. And then that's basically it. That's how you start. What are the challenges you see in, in getting not only the goals of the W3C, but I'm assuming specifically around accessibility? Uh, some of the things that I've seen is buy-in from stakeholders is probably the number one hurdle or barrier. Companies and stakeholders and board members, they don't 
think of, or in some cases, they don't care about accessibility until a company is getting sued. And that's a shame. And that's one of the things that I wrote about. I have an article on Smash Magazine, Making a Strong Case for Accessibility, it's called. And that is one of a few things that I've come across getting buy-in from stakeholders and getting buy-in from colleagues as well because you have you know you have people that they don't think about accessibility they think about a number of different things mostly what i've come across is they don't think about accessibility because there's no budget or they don't have the time or the company doesn't have the time it's not approved by the company those kind of the other thing that is right up there is it's a process, accessibility, making things accessible. And, you know, most people think that it's a big, you know, this huge mountain to climb. If you incorporate accessibility from the beginning of your project, it's so much easier. You know, you don't have to, you know, go back and you don't have to climb that mountain because you've waited until the very end oh we have time now so we'll do the accessibility stuff that makes it even more harder so. john your question actually is was similar to something i was thinking about with how you developed this superpower and i was going to ask and um still will now how did you afford all the time in the different places where you were over time to be able to get this focus and so how did you make the case along the way and what things did you learn in that persuasion class of life <laughs> that um was able to allow you to have that be where you could focus and spend more time on and have the places where you work prioritize accessibility it was a lot of I call it diplomatic uh, advocacy. So for instance, the best example I have is I had been hired to make a website, a public facing website and a SaaS application accessible. And the stakeholder I was directly reporting to, we were sitting down in a meeting one day and I said, well, I want to make sure that accessibility is the number one priority on this on these projects and <laughs> he shot back with well we don't have disabled users and that nearly knocked me back in my chair <laughs> so that was that was a surprise uh, just some groaning inside and i had to do it out loud for a moment Ooh. yeah i i did my internal groaning at the meeting <laughs> <laughs> that was just, yeah. And I remember that day very vividly, and I probably will for the rest of my life, that I looked at him and I kind of had to stop and think. And I said, well, you never know. There's always a chance that, you know, you're able now, you could be disabled at any time. I also pointed out that his eyeglasses that he wore are an assistive technology. So there was some light shed on that. And that kind of propelled me even further into advocacy and the accessibility side of things. That 
meeting really opened my eyes to, you know, not everyone is going to get it. Not everyone is going to be on board. Not everyone is going to think about disabled users. They really aren't. So from there, I used that example. I also used what I call the Domino's Pizza card lately because, oh, you don't want to get sued. That's my last resort as far as advocacy goes. Other than that, it's, you know, showing videotape of people using their product that are disabled and they can't use it. That's a huge difference maker when somebody, you know, a stakeholder sees that somebody can't use their product. There's numbers out there now that disabled users in this country alone, the United States, make up 25% of the population, I believe. They have a disposable income of $8 trillion. And the visually disabled population alone is, I believe, it was 1.6 billion, I think. I I would have to check that number again, but it's a big number. So the money side of things really gets through to a stakeholder faster than, well, your, your eyeglasses are assistive technology. So once they hear the financial side of things, their ears perk up real quick and then they're maybe get on board i've never had other than one stakeholder just say no that we're just gonna you know skip that and then they ended up that company ended up getting sued so that says a lot (laughs) to me anyways but uh you know that's how i really got into it and then there was a time where i was working for another company I was doing uh, consulting for them and I wasn't really doing, I was doing front end mostly. So it was accessibility, but also at the same time, it was more code, the code side of things. That was in 2018, 2019. I went to a, a conference in Burlington, Vermont. And I saw a friend of mine speaking and he was very passionate about it. And, that talk, and there was a couple others there as well, it lit that fire under me again. And I jumped right back in. And ever since then, it's just been, you know, accessibility. You reminded me, um, one of the arguments or uh, what did you say? Per- diplomatic advocacy uh, statements that I have used is that we are all temporarily abled. <laughs> like... <laughs> That's just how it is. And seeing things that way can really shift how you orient to the idea of disability as other and and reduce the othering. But I was also uh, wondering how long it would be before Pizza Hut came up in our combo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I haven't heard of that. Can you tell us what that is? So, So it was Domino's and... They had a blind user that tried to use their app. He couldn't use their app. Their app was inaccessible. He tried to use the website. The website was inaccessible. And I have a link that I can, you know, I can send over to um, the whole story because I'm probably getting bits and pieces wrong. But from what I can recall, basically this user sued Domino's and instead of 
Domino's spending, I believe it was $36,000 to fix their website and their app. They decided to drag it out for a number of years through court and, of course, spend more money than just $36,000. In the end, they lost. I think they tried to appeal to the Supreme Court because they had gone up as high as federal court. But regardless, they lost. They had to. And I don't know if they still have an inaccessible site or not, or the app for that matter, because I don't go to Domino's. But that's basically the story that they had a user who tried to access you know, the app and the website, couldn't use it, and they got taken to court. Now, Domino's claimed in the court case that he could have used the telephone, but he had tried to use the telephone twice and was on hold for 45 minutes. So... <laughs> that says that says a lot. Looks like it actually did go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I correct me if I'm wrong. I think they did not want to hear it. They just said, "No, we're not going to. We're not going to hear it, hear the case." Yeah, and, and just think about you know all these apps we use and all the you know people that can't access those apps or the websites. I went to some company websites because I was doing some research and. You know, big companies, uh, and a lot of them are inaccessible. And a little number that I can throw out there every year, you know, there's been a little over 2,500 lawsuits in the US. But this year, if the rate keeps on going that it has, we're on course for over 4,000 lawsuits in the US alone for inaccessible websites. You've had companies like Target, Bank of America, Winn-Dixie, those kinds of companies have been sued by people because of inaccessible sites. Okay, but may I say this one thing, which is, I just want to extend my apologies to Pizza Hut. (laughs) What kinds of things do you see as not being accessible that should be or easily could be that companies just simply aren't doing? The big one, still... And um, if you go to webaim.org slash projects slash million, it's the WebAIM Million Report. It's an annual accessibility analysis of the top 1 million homepages on the internet. The number one thing again this year is color contrast. Uh, there are guidelines in place with WCAG is which is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, that text should be a 4.5 to 1 ratio that reaches the minimum contrast for text. There's a lot of text out there that doesn't even reach that. So it's color contrast. You'll find a lot of, if you look at, um, I'm looking at the chart right now, missing all text on images. Uh, If you have an image that is informative or you have an image that is, you know, conveying something to a user, it has to have alternative text describing what's in the picture. You know, you don't have to go into a, a long story about what's in the picture and describe it thoroughly. You can just give a quick overview as to what the picture is trying to convey what and what is in the picture. And then another one being another failure type 
uh, is uh, form input labels, uh, labels that are not labeled correctly. I wrote a article about that on CSS tricks. And that is, uh, you know, there's programmatic and there's accessible uh, names for form labels that not only help the accessibility side of it as far as making the site accessible, but also it helps screen reader users read forms and navigate through forms, keyboard users also. Then you have empty links. And then a big one that I've seen lately is if you look up in the uh, source code and you see the HTML tag and the language attribute, a lot of sites now, because they use um, frameworks, they don't have a document language. Uh, I ran across a lot of sites that don't use a document language because they're using a, a framework. I won't name names because <laughs> I'm not out to shame, but having that attribute helps screen reader users. And I think that's a big thing. A lot of accessibility, people don't understand. People use screen readers or other assistive technologies, for instance, Dragon Naturally Speaking, voice input. But at the same time, I got to also add accessibility is more than just deaf or blind. I suffer from migraines, migraine headaches. So animation or motion from, say, parallax uh, scrolling can trigger a migraine. Animations that are too fast, that also can cause and trigger migraine headache. You have flashing content that can potentially cause seizures. And that's actually happened before, where a, a, an animated GIF was intentionally sent to someone and it caused a seizure uh, and almost killed the person. So um, there's those. And then the last thing on this list that I'm looking at right now, and these are common failures, uh, empty buttons. You know, you have buttons that uh, don't have labels, buttons that have click here. Buttons need to be descriptive. So you want to have, you know, on my site to send me uh, something on the contact form. It's send this info to Todd click here or, you know, something, something similar like that. Can you think of any, John, that you know of too? I've got a couple in mind. How about you, Mandy? For me, because I'm just starting out, I don't know a whole lot about accessibility. That's why I'm here and trying to learn. But I am really conscious and careful of some of the gifts that I use yep. because I do know that uh, some of the motion ones, especially really fast-moving ones, can cause problems and migraines, seizures for people. So when posting those, I'm really, really mindful about it. Yeah, the click here one is, is always bothers me too because not only is it bad accessibility, it's bad UX. Like HTML allows you to turn anything into a link so you can make all the words inside the button and it's just fine. And like, <laughs> there's so many other ways to do it that are just even discounting the, the accessibility impact, which I don't want to discount. Yeah. And, and touching upon that, I'm glad you brought up the button because I was just going to let that go <laughs> past me. I have to say, and I think it was 
uh, in the email where it said, what's bothering you? What bothers me is people that don't use the button element. If you're using a div or an anchor tag or a span, stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. There's a button element for that. I read somewhere an anchor tag takes you somewhere. A div is a container and a button is for a button. I love that. The The only other ones I could think of are, it's related to something you said, making sure to have tab order set up properly to allow people to navigate. Yeah, again, I liked your point about you don't have to be fully blind to benefit from these things and having keyboard accessibility can benefit a lot of people for all kinds of reasons. And the other one is, and, and I would love to hear everybody's thoughts on this one. I have heard that we're supposed to be using like H1, H2, H3 and having proper setup of our HTML. And most of us fail just in that basic part. And, and that's another way of um, supporting people to be able to navigate around and figure out what's about to be on this page and how much should I dig into it. So more on um, non-visual navigation stuff. Yeah, heading structure is hugely important for keyboard users and screen reader users, as well as tab order. And that's where semantic HTML comes into play. You know, if you're writing semantic HTML, HTML by default, save for a few caveats, is accessible right out of the box. If your site and somebody can, you know, somebody can navigate through using the, the let's say the, the keyboard, for instance, and they can navigate in a way that is structurally logical, for instance, and has a flow to it that makes sense, then they're going to be able to not only navigate that site, but, you know, if you're selling something on that site, you're going to have somebody buying something, probably. So that's where, again, where tab order and heading structure comes into play, and it's very important. I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or or if you know this, that the same sort of accessibility enhancements are available in native mobile applications that that aren't using HTML. Is that is that correct? Having not delved into the mobile side of things with apps myself, that I really can't answer. I can say though that the WCAG guidelines though that does pertain to mobile as well as as desktop you know there's no certain set of rules 2.2 is where there are some new um features that you know for mobile for instance target size and again i wrote another article on css tricks about target size as well because if you ever notice those little ad those little ads that you just want to click off and click away from and get off your phone and they have those little tiny X's and you can't, <laughs> you're, you're sitting there tapping all day. Yeah, those are the things, target size and, um, you know, dragging movements as well. I did an audit for an app and there was a lot of buttons that were not named. So a lot of the accessibility issues I ran into were the same as I would run into doing an audit on a website. So I don't know anything about Swift or, you know, Flutter or anything like that. 
they pretty much fall into the same category, web and mobile, as far as accessible. I also wanted to circle back on like one of those, the first item that you listed as far as, as the web aim, you know, million uh, thing was like color contrast, which is one of those ones where like the designer comes up with something that looks super cool and sleek, but it's like dark gray on a light gray background. And it looks great when you've got perfect eyesight, but anybody else, you're just like, Oh my God, what's that? And, and that's also one of the things that's, that's probably easiest to change site wide. It's like you go in and you tweak the CSS and like you're done in a half hour and you've got the whole site updated. So it's a great like bit of low hanging fruit that you can attach, uh, if you wanted to start on this process. Yeah. Color contrast is a, of course, uh, you know, uh, as the report says, the number one thing. And let me look back here. You know, it, it's slowly the numbers are dropping, but 85.3%, that's still a very high number of failures. And there's larger text. If you're using anything over 18 pixels or the equivalent of 18, it's either 18 points or 18 pixels is a three to one ratio. With that, Color contrast is how our brains perceive color. It's not the actual contrast of that color. And there are people far more qualified than me to, to go into that or that can go into that. So what I'll say is I've seen a lot of teams and companies. Yeah, we'll do a little over 4.5 to 1 and we'll call it a day. But I always say if you can do seven to one or even 10 to one on your ratios and you can find a way to make your brand you know or whatever the same then go for it a lot of the time you hear well we don't want to change the colors of our brand well your colors of your brand are inaccessible to somebody that has for instance tritonopia which is you know blues and i think it's blues and greens are very hard to see but they don't see them at all color deficiencies are a thing that design teams aren't going to check for. They're just not. You know, like you said, all these colors look awesome. So let's just, you know, we're going to go with that on our UI. And I, that's one thing that I actually ran into on that SAS product that I spoke about earlier was there was these colors, you know, and these colors were a dark blue, a very muted dark blue with orange text you would think the the contrast would be eh, that would be all right but it was it was horrible you can you can get browser plugins that'll show you what the the page looks yes. like so you can check these things yourself like you can go in and say oh you're right that's completely illegible yeah firefox like i have right here on my work machine i have right here firefox in it it does uh, there's there's some there's a simulator for uh, visual, you know, color deficiencies, it also checks for contrast as well. Chrome has one, which it actually has a very cool eyedropper to check for color contrast. If you use the inspector also in Firefox, that brings up a little contrast uh, thing. Wave, the Wave extension has a contrast tool. There's also a lot of different apps if you have a Mac. Like I do, I have like, I have, I have too many color contrast because I love checking out these uh, color contrast apps. So I have about five different color contrast apps on my Macs. 
but there's also websites too that you can use uh, at the same time. If you just, you know, do a search for color contrast, contrast ratio, contrast hyphen ratio.com is from Leah Varu. I use that one a lot. A lot of people use that one. And there's so many of them out there to choose from, but they, they are a very handy tool at, at you know, designers disposal uh, for adult developers disposal as well. So I'm trying to think of, like I was saying earlier, the, the color contrast one is, is a, one of those things that's probably pretty straightforward to, to you can, you can upgrade your whole site, like in a short amount of time. Color contrast is a little trickier because it gets into branding and, you know, like marketing is going to want to care about it and all that kind of stuff. So like you might have a bit of, a bit more battle around that, but it could probably be done and, and you might be able to fix at least the worst parts of the page that have problems around that. And so I'm, I'm just trying to think of like, the ways that you could get get the ball rolling on this kind of a work like if you can get those e- early easy wins you're going to it's going to get more people on board with the process and not saying like oh it's going to take us 8 months and we have to go through every single page and change every form and right like that sounds really daunting when you think about it and so trying to imagine what those easy early wins are that can get people down that road yeah starting from the very outset of the project is probably the key one incorporating accessibility from the start of the project. You know, like I said earlier, it's a lot easier when you do it from the start rather than, you know, waiting till the very end or even after the the product has been launched and you go back and go, oh, well, now we need to fix it. You're not only putting stress on your teams, but you're, you know, it's eating up time and money because you're now paying everybody to go back and, you know, look at all these these accessibility issues again. Having one person as a dedicated accessibility advocate on each team helps immensely. So you have one person on the development team, one person in the design team, one person on the marketing team. Starting from the top, you know, if somebody goes there to a stakeholder and says, listen, we need to, you know, start incorporating accessibility from the very start. Here's why. Nine times out of 10, I can guarantee you, you're probably going to get that stakeholder on board. That 10th time, you'll have to go as far as maybe I did and say, well, Domino's Pizza or Bank of America or Target, again, their ears are going to perk up and they're going to go, oh, well, I don't, we, we don't want to get sued. So that and going back to, you know, having one person on each team. Training, there are so many resources out there for accessibility training. There are companies out there that train. There are companies that, you know, you can bring in to the organization that will train, that'll help train. That's so easier than what are we going to do? A lot of people just sitting there in a room going, well, how, well, how are we going to do this? You know, having that person in each department, getting together with everybody else, that's you know, that, that, uh, advocate for the, you know, each department meeting up and saying, okay, we're going to coordinate. You're going to put out a fantastic product. That's going to be accessible. And also at the same time, the financial aspect is it's going to make, it's going to make the company money, but most of all, it's going to include a lot of people that are normally not included. If you're putting out an accessible product. Because if you go to a certain website 
I can guarantee you it's going to be inaccessible because about 99% of the web is inaccessible and it's going to be exclusive as it's going to, you know, somebody's going to get shut out of, out of the site or app. So this falls on applications as well. And another thing too, I just wanted to throw in here for, for uh, color contrast. There are different, you know, you have color contrast of text, but you also have non-text contrast. You have text in images, that kind of contrast as well. And it does get a little confusing. Let's face it. The guidelines right now is a very technically written, it's like a technical manual. A lot of people have come up to me and said, I can't read this. I can't make sense of this. Can you translate this? So hopefully, <clears throat> and this is part of the, the work that I'm doing with a lot of other people in uh, the W3C is we're making the language of 3.0 in plain language, basically. It's going to be a lot easier to understand these guidelines instead of all that technical jargon. I look at something right now and I'm scratching my head when I'm doing an audit going, okay, what do they mean by this? All these people come together and we, we agree on what to write. You know, what is the language that's going to go into this? So when they get together, you know, 2.0, which was years and years ago, they said, okay, this is going to be how we're going to write this and we're going to publish this. And then you had a lot of people just like me scratching their heads, you know, not understanding it. So hopefully, and I'm pretty sure, you know, 99.9% .9 sure that it's going to be a lot easier for people to understand. That sounds awesome. And if you end up needing a bunch of play testers, I bet a lot of our listeners would be totally willing to put in some time. I know I would. Just want to put in one last plug for anybody out there who uh, really loves automating things and is trying to avoid relying on any single developer or designer or QA person to remember to check for accessibility is to build it into your CI/CD pipeline. There are a lot of different options. And um, another approach to couple with that or do independently is to use the Axe Core Gems. And that link will be in the show notes where it'll allow you to be able to add in, like sprinkle in your tests, accessibility checks on different different pieces. So if we've decided we're going to handle color contrast, cool, then it'll check that. But if we're not ready to deal with another point of accessibility, then we can skip it. So very similar to RuboCop. Anyway, just wanted to offer in some some other tips and tricks of the trade to be able to get going on accessibility. And then you can, once you get that train rolling, it can do a little better, but it is hard to start from scratch. That's a great tip, May. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, with that, I think it's about time we head into reflections. This is the point of the show where we talk about something that we thought stood out that we want to think about more or a place that we can call for a call of action to our listeners or even to ourselves. Who wants to go first? I can go first. I learned something awesome from you, Todd, which I had not thought of before, which is if I am eyeballing for quote-unquote 
contrast, especially color contrast, that's not necessarily what that means. And um, I really appreciate learning that and will definitely be applying that in my daily life. So thanks for teaching me a whole bunch of things, including that. You're welcome. I think for me, it's just a continuing reminder to, I mean, I, I do like the thinking that you, I think you may have brought up and, and also Todd that sort of was talking about earlier at the beginning about how like we're all of us temporarily not disabled and that I think it helps bring some of the, that empathy a little closer to us. So it makes it a little more accessible to us to realize that like it's going to happen to us at some at some point at some level, and to help then bring that empathy out to the other people who are currently in that state. And I really, I that I think it's a useful way of thinking about it. And and also like the the idea that I've been thinking through as we've been talking about this is is like how do we get the ball rolling on this? Like we have an existing application that's ten years old. It's going to take a lot to get it there. But how do we how do we get the process started so we feel like we're making progress there rather than just saying. Oh, we did HTML four form twenty seven out of one hundred and sixty three. <laughs> All right, back at it tomorrow. Like that, it's <laughs> hard to think about. So, like feeling like there's progress is a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And you know, as we get older, our eyes, you know, they're one of the first things to go. So, you know, I'm going to need you know assistive technology at some point. So, yeah. And then you know what you touched upon, John. You know. It may be daunting, you know, having to go back and do the you know, whole, okay, what are we going to do for accessibility now that this project, you know, it's 10 years old, 15 years old. The SAS project that I was talking about was, it yeah, was 15 year old code, you know, dot net. I got people together, one from each department. We all got together and we ended up making that product accessible for them. So it can be done. <laughs> it can be done. That's actually a really good point. Like just hearing about successes in the wild with particularly hairy projects is a great thing. Like, cause again, I'm, I'm thinking about it at the start of a project and hearing that somebody made it all through and maybe even repeatedly is, is heartening. Yeah. It, it's not something that, you know, once it's done, it's done, you know, accessibility, just like the web is an ever evolving medium. For me, I think my reflection is going to be, you know, as a new coder, I do want to say, you know, I'm glad that we talked about a lot of the things that you see that aren't currently accessible that can be accessible. One of those things is using, you know, alt tags. And right now, I know when I put the social media posts out on Twitter, I don't use the alt tags. and I should. So, you know, just putting uh, an alt tag saying, this is a picture of our guest, Todd, and the title of the show would probably be helpful for some of our listeners. So I'm going to start doing that. So thank you. You're welcome. Just, it, it, you know, I'm just reminded of, you know, our, our talk and every talk that I have with on a podcast or with anybody just reminds me of the work that I have to do and the work that is being done by a lot of different people other than myself as well as uh, far as advocacy goes and that I don't think that it's ever going to be a job that will ever go away 
there will always be a need for accessibility advocacy uh, for the web. And, you know, it's, it's great just to, you know, be able to sit down and talk to people about accessibility and what we need to do to make the web better and more inclusive for everybody. Because, you know, I, I tweet out a lot, accessibility is a right, not a privilege. And I really feel that to my core because, you know, the UN specifically says that the internet is a basic human right. And I went as far as to go say, well, so is an accessibility of that internet as well. So that is my reflection. I'll add an alt tag for me right now is uh, with a fist up and a big smile and um, a lot of enthusiasm in my heart. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Todd. It's been really great talking with you, and I really appreciate you coming on the show to share with us your knowledge and your expertise on the subject of accessibility. So with that, I will close out the show and say we do have a Slack channel, and Todd will be invited to it if you'd like to talk more to us and the rest of the Greater Than Code community, you can visit patreon.com slash greater than code and pledge to support us monthly. And again, if you cannot afford that or do not want to pledge to help run the show, uh, you can DM any one of us and we will get you in there for free because we want to make the Slack channel accessible for all. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.